I'll never forget the four years that I spent in seminary from 01 to 2005. It was, in a lot of ways, a wonderful four years, but in, in other ways, it was a very challenging four years. The Master of Divinity is a pretty long program, and it has seemingly countless hours of study, of writing papers, of reading books. It was overwhelming at times. And I was working full-time, and so I was a full-time employee, and I was a full-time student, but I was only a, at best, part-time husband. I was never around. I wasn't there for my wife, and I can make excuses on, yes, but it has been demands on me, and in some ways that may actually be true, but if I'm, if I'm really honest, I did not value my wife. I rarely, if ever, considered her needs, and I pretty much never served my wife, and I didn't even realize just how unhealthy I was. I was just pushing through and doing what I was doing and being very unaware of how grave the situation was in my life and in my marriage, and I had a really good friend. I praise God for meaningful Christ-centered discipleship relationships. I had a wonderful friend, also a seminary student, member of the church that I was also a member of, and he lovingly confronted me, and he spoke truth to me. He held me accountable, and he walked with me. He helped me to see that my marriage was holding on by a thread, and it was through his prayer and fasting and encouragement and accountability in that relationship focused around the word that God, through his spirit, slowly but surely began to change my heart. And I began to truly understand what marriage was beyond the academics, but in loving my wife. And when I finally did graduate from seminary, we, we had been on the path and were experiencing far more intimacy and we experienced restoration in our marriage. So my brother truly helped me, but it was God's Spirit that was restoring me in our marriage. And I praise our God that he's in the business of restoration. This is what God does. He restores brokenness. He is actively restoring his people so that we can then display his glory to the nations as we reveal the character of God and what we think and what we say and what we do. And so today we're continuing in our preaching series in Ezra and Nehemiah, a series called Restoration, the gospel in Ezra and Nehemiah. See, God's plan has always been to create a holy people that will enjoy him forever, and thus display his glory to the nations. That is God's plan. That has always been God's plan. And so on the cross, which is his death, and then his burial, and his resurrection, he conquered sin and death. He took our guilt and our shame upon him so that now we can be restored to God the Father. And through his victory over sin and death, he is pushing back the darkness of this broken 
world, and he is restoring his people to the original plan of being made holy and enjoying him for eternity, and in so doing, displaying his glory to the world that he has created. And so the, the series theme of Ezra and Nehemiah for the next few months is, it's on the screen, that God is actively at work restoring his people so that they can worship him faithfully. And so those of us here in the room that are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, we have already, so here's the key, already been restored to a relationship with God, but we are not yet in heaven. And so believers in Jesus live in the already, but not yet. We have already been declared righteous and already been justified, but we have not yet been glorified. And so we live in the here and the now and the already, but not yet in the life of sanctification, the life of faith, not by sight. And so this already reality, but not yet consummated reality following Jesus means that God has restored and yet he continues in our daily lives to restore us more to his plan, more to himself, so that we have more of his healing. We need more of his presence, his sanctifying presence in our lives, so that every area of our life, every relationship is truly restored to each other and ultimately to God. So during this season, when as a church we're, we're contemplating this, this theme of restoration, my prayer has been and will continue to be that we will see God. It will be revealed to us that we will truly see him accomplish a mighty work of restoration here in this church. I want to see more renewal right here in our midst. I want to see more of God's glory displayed here and now. I'm praying that we will see more people that are far from God. Because there are many in Abu Dhabi, maybe even in this room. People that are very far from God. I, I, I want to see them restored to a loving relationship with God the Father. I want to see marriages like where mine was all those years ago. I want to see marriages restored and whole and renewed. I want to see rebellious sons and daughters restored to their parents. I want to see friendships that are, that are fractured or broken and, and see them mended and restored. And hearts that are broken, hearts that are timid, hearts that are really struggling today, may we see them restored back to trusting in our God. Maybe you're here and, and you're thinking to yourself, you have no idea, Pastor. I've lost so much. Can God really restore my brokenness. Is this true? Can God really restore me? I read to you from Joel chapter 2, verse 25 and 26. Prophet Joel says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. Our God promises to restore all the lost years, all that has been taken away from you, 
All of the locusts I've eaten, God promises to restore. And he says that I will give you plenty and I will satisfy you. So God is promising to satisfy our souls and to restore. Why? Why does God want to restore? So that you may praise the name of the Lord your God. That is what he is after. That he restores us so that we can then worship him and praise him. This is, this is my heart's desire for my life and for yours and for our church. So as we continue in these Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we must remember the context of how God was restoring and how it points to Jesus and his work on the cross and how it applies to us today. Brief review from last week on the history here in Ezra and Nehemiah. There were one book originally, so it's one unit. The context is that the people of God had been rebellious. They had been repeatedly going after idols and forsaking their God, abandoning him. And so in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 10 and 11, there is a terrifying vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. I mean, if you were alive in that time, in the 6th century B.C., And Ezekiel is revealing God's glory is departing from the temple. We're alone. God's presence is leaving. That was the worst possible nightmare that they could have possibly have received as a vision from God. And indeed, judgment did come. In 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire came in, completely destroyed Jerusalem. They demolished it, and they reduced the temple to rubble. And the survivors were taken as captives to live in exile in Babylon, modern-day Iraq. So in the middle of all this judgment that was God's holiness and that was deserved judgment, in the middle of that, God was promising hope, promising restoration and His grace, and through, through the prophet's He promised to restore them to his land of promise and back to himself. So we looked at last week in Ezra chapter 1, that years later in 539 B.C., God kept his promise when King Cyrus of Persia decreed that all the Jews could go back to their homeland, rebuild it, rebuild the temple, and that he would actually finance the reconstruction. And then in Ezra chapter 2, we saw that there's a long list of the 42,360 exiles that returned to Jerusalem to reconstruct and to experience God's restoration. Let's continue the story today by looking at Ezra chapter 3. So we're looking at Ezra 3, and the words are on the screen. Let's read that together. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Jodazak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written, the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in his place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. 
And they kept the feast of booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians and, be, and to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men, who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Amen. Let's remember the theme of Ezra, as we now have read Ezra chapter 3. The God is actively at work, restoring his people so that they can faithfully worship him. And you see this theme completely summarized right here in Ezra chapter 3. So the main idea from Ezra chapter 3, the primary truth here, is that God's restoration leads his people to true worship. That's what we're seeing here. It's that God's restoration leads his people to true worship. But hey, the question still is, well, what is worship? We use the word all the time in church, but we need to define it. Well, what exactly is worship? Worship is ascribing ultimate worth to something or someone. So ascribing ultimate worth. So whatever you value above all else is what you worship. We all worship. To be human fundamentally is to be a worshiper. That's what we are. We all worship. So let me ask you some questions so you can begin to think through What exactly or who do you worship? Because we all do, all the time, every day, every moment of every day we're worshiping something or someone. So what gives you the greatest joy? 
Where do you turn to for comfort when life is being unkind to you? What is your greatest source of security? What what makes you feel secure in life? Where do you turn to for security? What occupies your thoughts? When it's just you and your thoughts, what do you find coming to your mind on a very regular basis and just kind of, what do you dwell on? That is what you worship. It is. If we're honest with ourselves, that is what we are worshiping. But God made us to worship him, to find our joy, our comfort, our security, our thoughts focused on him. So we're created to worship him, to know God, to truly enjoy him, to be satisfied in him. And this is only possible by God's grace, by the way. Only through his son's work on the cross and his spirit in us are we even able to worship in spirit and truth. And Ezra 3 here is describing how God is restoring his people so that they can worship him authentically. Not put on a mask and a show on Friday morning, but for real, heartfelt worship of Christ every day. And God's restoring so that that can happen in the lives of his people. But here's the key, in the middle of life's challenges and uncertainties. So we're going to see here this morning three particular specific challenges in life where God is restoring us so that we can worship him even in the middle of these challenges. So these are areas of our lives where God's restoring grace meets us and just where it's so daily. So number one, God's restoration leads us to truly worship him, number one, while facing great fear. We're called and we're enabled by God's restoring work to worship him when we're facing fear. Ezra 1, well, I'm sorry, 3 verses 1 through 6. So the first section in this, in this chapter shows how we must respond to fear with passionate worship of God. So verse 1 says that within the first year, the exiles returned. And it says, gathered as one man in Jerusalem. And it says, on the seventh month. Now, in the Jewish calendar, the seventh month is actually right now. September, October, like this time of year that we're in right now is the Jewish calendar seventh month. And it was considered and, and continues for a lot of people that follow the Jewish faith. It continues to be the most holy, you know, as, as they understand the month of the year. And so they began this, this seventh month of the year, it says, by blowing a trumpet, which was proclaiming like a solemn, together day of rest. And that was called the Feast of Trumpets. Now it says on the 10th day, so 10 days later in that month, they would celebrate the Day of Atonement, where they admitted that they are sinners and that a price has to be paid for sin. And they would praise God that he would that he would provide substitute sacrifices to die in their place and take away their guilt and their shame. So they would celebrate Day of Atonement in this month. And then on the 15th day, so five days later, they would begin a week-long festival called the Feast of Booths, which you see here in verse 4 that they began to reinstitute and then to observe these 
festivals, feasts of booths that would remember how God provided for them when they left Egypt and they were living in the wilderness and they didn't have homes and they were living in tents or booths, sometimes called feasts of tabernacles. Tabernacle is a tent. So they were living in tents in the wilderness and God provided manna for them. So they were celebrating God's provision for them. And so these various festivals throughout the year for for the ancient Israelites was a way of celebrating God's redemption and remembering that they belong to him. So then verse 2 says that they built the altar of God and says to offer burnt offerings on it. So, So the temple is in ruins. It's still all destroyed. But the first thing that they rebuilt was the altar. That's the first thing that we see here. So what they wanted to do was offer God sacrifices to praise him. This is their act of worship. And so they had a heart to worship God. But let's read verse 3. Again, just here briefly. And so they set the altar in its place. Here's the key. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord. So it says that they were afraid. And so what did they do in response to that fear? It says they offered sacrifices. This is important. Because what you're seeing here in all of these festivals, the Feast of Trumpets, Atonement, and and even the Feast of Booths, it's all pointing to Jesus. Everything in here points to Christ, to his gospel. And so if you said trumpets, Jesus is our ultimate rest. And when he comes back, there's going to be a trumpet and voice of an archangel. And that is going to signal that the end is upon us. Christ is going to come as the victorious king, and he is going to bring final rest for us in the new heavens and the new earth. The atonement, that points to Christ. He is the altar. He is the high priest. He is the sacrifice who died in our place. So everything about the atonement points to what Christ did. And as far as booths, well, he is the ultimate provider. He is the bread from heaven. He is the manna. He satisfies and nourishes our souls. So everything that they were, they were celebrating in these festivals points to and is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Verses 4 through 6 describes how they began to celebrate these feasts, worshiping God together. So God here was restoring their land. He was restoring the temple. Now the altar is built, which results in them now worshiping God together as a people. But remember, here's the key. They did this in the middle of great fear. Fear of the people. Now remember, when, when they were in exile, people still moved in and lived in Judah. But these people didn't know or love God. And now the Jews have come back, and there's other enemies that now live there that have not occupied the land. And as we'll read later in Ezra and Nehemiah, they were enemies. They did attack, and they tried to stop God's people and to destroy them. And so they they were right to be afraid because these were indeed enemies. And so just picture this. You've left exile, you, you go to Judah, you work hard to rebuild your house, you plant crops, and you have your homestead all set up. And now you have to leave your home, 
and go to Jerusalem with everyone else. It says, as one man. So everyone together was doing this. And you're leaving your home vacant. You're leaving your home unattended and vulnerable. To, to do what? To go worship. To go obey God. And so that time was vacant and even vulnerable. See, in the eyes of the world, that made no sense. It was foolish. It would be better to stay home and guard your stuff. That would make much more sense in the eyes of the world. Protect what you have. And yet, we know from God's word, it's always better to obey and worship. Better to worship God than to do what we think is safe. And to try to control circumstances and try to build security for ourselves according to our own wisdom. And let's just be honest. We live in uncertain times. And we live in a very uncertain region of this world. And I've been here for a little over three years. And so I don't pretend to have been here all that long. But for Abu Dhabi, that's kind of a long time, three years. That's like a lifetime in this context. And right now, the economy here is worse than it's been, and I don't even know how long. Even in 08, when we, we had the, the crash and, and the, the housing bubble and all of that happened, and, and Dubai was rocked and built out by Abu Dhabi. Even then, price of oil was over $100 a barrel. And so Abu Dhabi had no problem economically. It was just chugging along perfectly. But now at oil at 40-some dollars a barrel... Now we're seeing more layoffs. And I look across the room and I see several people that I know that you're struggling because your contract is uncertain. And oil does not seem to be coming back up. And we're not guaranteed that oil will go back up. A lot of people in this room, your jobs are really uncertain. And a lot of you know that it's uncertain. And others of you might not know yet what's coming around the corner. And let's just be honest, I, I live from the gospel, financially speaking. And so if the church cannot continue financially, then I no longer have a profession, at least not in Abu Dhabi. God is sovereign over that. But the reality is this, that we live with so much uncertainty in this city. And in the face of anxiety, worry, or of fear. We are called to draw near and worship God. You see, here's the key when it comes to anxiety and fear, is when we feel secure, it disappears. And so security makes anxiety disappear. Like a small child. If you have a small child that's afraid and and crying and just terrified, the second that his father picks him up and holds him, and that child feels secure, the tears and and the terror will instantly stop. When we feel secure, we're no longer afraid. We're no longer worried or anxious. And so our Father's loving arms holding us, being secure in God, pushes away the anxiety of the uncertainty. If today you're struggling with worry or anxiety or fear, you must focus your heart, mind, and soul and your whole life on 
our glorious God who is sovereign, who we can trust. We do not focus on circumstances. We do not look at the price of oil. We do not focus on the things of this world. Our focus is on the sovereign God. Our focus is not on shifting circumstances. What we do in the middle of despair is we run to the shelter of God's character. He is our strong tower. We run to him shelter. So our security is in Christ alone. God is not worried about the price of oil. God is not concerned about our uncertain contract situations. God is perfectly at peace working out his plan that will display his glory that is for our good. So what are you afraid of? And I I really ask that because there's a lot of fears that can grip us. What are you afraid of? The future? Are you afraid of the unknown? Are you afraid of not having enough money for your children's university? Or enough money for your retirement? Are you afraid of failure? Maybe you're afraid of suffering. See, but suffering has a way of of causing believers in Christ to remember what really matters. It has a remarkable way of helping us to refocus on Christ. We read earlier in the worship gathering out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 how our suffering today is real. But when we compare it to future glory that awaits us, he calls it light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so we look not to the things of this world, for things of this world are transient. We focus on what is unseen because that is eternal. And so the point here is there is no comparison for the glory that God has in store for us when we look at the troubles and the anxiety that we would be plagued by here in this world. God uses our circumstances, as difficult as they may be, to prepare us, to conform us to the image of Christ. And he's reminding us of our weakness. When there's uncertainty in our lives, we remember that we are weak. And why does he do that? So that we will run to him to the shelter of his character, drawn near to Christ, where we find true joy and security in the middle of so much uncertainty. So what you see here with the people of God and applies to us today is in the face of fear, we worship God. We don't turn to idols. God is our refuge. We think back to King David when he was running away from King Saul who wanted to kill him And David was hiding in a cave. Do you think that cave was David's refuge? God was David's refuge. And he must be our refuge. So we draw near to him, we read his word, we meditate, we pray, we follow him in community. And as we're experiencing God's presence, we see him change our hearts so that 
we trust him in the middle of unknowns. So God's restoration leads us to worship him in the middle of great fear. Number two, while facing great responsibility. See, they had fear of those that were around, but they had a big task in front of them. They had great responsibility on their shoulders. The Jews had rebuilt the altar in the temple and had begun to worship him. So again, the altar is rebuilt, but the temple is still in ruins. And so they begin the restoration of the foundation. Because it says in verse 6, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. There was a lot of work that still had to be done. Verses 7 through 11, I'll summarize it for you, and we read it earlier. They gathered the materials, and the Levites and others oversaw the process of the reconstruction. And then over a year later, so this is a long process. This is not easy. It took over a year to lay the foundation, then it was complete. And so at that point, what happened? Well, they praised God. What sustained them to continue working hard with so, like the task must have looked so big. A fairly small community of returnees from Babylon. And they look at this huge temple and it's just in ruins. And they have to go ahead and start rebuilding. It must have been overwhelming at times. The sheer responsibility of what God had called them to do. Can you relate? When you look at your life, do you see great responsibility on your shoulders? What is resting on you? Whether it's a parent, as an employee, as a husband, as a wife, as a servant in our church, do you feel a weight, a burden upon you because of this great responsibility that maybe God has given to you? And are you feeling crushed under the weight of life and what you're called to do? You know, we probably all heard sermons, we've been in church for a long time, sermons that go along these lines, and it'll say, God will never give you more than you can handle. Who's heard the sermon like that? Anyone? Uh, quite a few hands. That's a lie. It's not true. God's going to give you way more than you can handle in your own strength, in your own wisdom. And he wants it that way. He wants you to be in over your head. He wants you to be so overwhelmed where you realize you're at the end of your rope, end of your resources, end of your wisdom, end of your ability, end of your connections, end of your finances, end of yourself. And you look up and say, God, only through your empowering, only through you can I do this. Without you, I've got nothing. That's the point of the gospel. God does not help those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. God helps the needy. God helps the broken. He helps the hopeless and the helpless. Those that have no hope and that are so lost and dead. And then God shows up. And he resurrects the dead. Even dead circumstances, dead marriages, he restores it. And through his power, through his wisdom, through his strength, through the community of his people, focus on his word, he gets the glory when he helps us to do what we could never handle on our own. And he wants us to be in a position of recognizing our weakness, not our strength, because we don't have any. He is all-powerful. 
and looking back at how he's been faithful. Like they sung, God is good and he is faithful forever. Looking back at how he has provided in the past will help you to believe and have confidence that he will do it today and tomorrow. And that he will keep his promise and Christ will return. He will resurrect us and we will live forever with him in his presence. We have hope in God who is faithful in the face of overwhelming responsibility in your life. When you're faced with something really hard, you have two options. You only have two. You can try to run away. You can try to run away by escaping through, I don't know, mindless hours of TV or social media, another sinful habit, trying to control everything or everyone around you so that you can kind of manage everything. That's escaping. That's trying to run away from your your responsibility. So you can run away or you can run to God. Those are your options. And running to God is what? Worshiping God for his faithfulness, as you see the people here in Ezra 3 doing. In the middle of this huge task, they're worshiping and trusting in God. We rest by drawing near to Christ. So God's restoration leads us to worship him while facing great fear and great responsibility. Number three, as we wrap things up, his restoration leads us to worship him while facing great disappointment. Even in the face of disappointment, we can worship God. You see it in verses 12 and 13. It describes how finally, over a year later, all of this work, God sustains them. God helps them. They lay the foundation. It's finally done. And all those that are young are saying, "Woohoo!" They're praising God. They're rejoicing in the foundation is laid. But what happened to the older generation that had seen the temple before it was destroyed? They remembered it in its splendor and in its glory. What did they do? They wept. They're saying, you think this is a temple? This one stinks. This foundation is horrible compared to what we had. This is, this is not the splendor and glory of the old temple. This is a joke of a temple. And they're really disappointed. They're struggling. Can you hear it? In verse 13, it says, So the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout, the younger ones, from the sound of people's weeping, the older ones. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Let me tell you this. Sin robs us. Sin robs us. Sin promises pleasure to thrill us, to excite us, to satisfy us, to give us meaning. But it's all a lie. It robs us of joy. It robs us of relationship, takes us far from God. The reason why the temple was destroyed was because of sin. Sin and God's holy deserved judgment The consequences is why the temple was destroyed in the first place. They were robbed of that temple because of their sin. And this new one indeed did lack the splendor and glory of the previous one. The Israelites here were facing great disappointment. 
Can you relate on this Friday morning? In your life, are you facing disappointment? Hey, we all face it. Let's just be honest. All of us faces disappointment. All of us. As sinful creatures, it's natural for us to be disappointed. But hear me, this is important. Yes, it's natural, but it's never neutral. Yes, it's natural. We all do it, but it's never neutral. Our disappointment is always rooted in what we believe. Jesus told his disciples in John fifteen sixteen, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. In life, there will be some appointments that you will want that Jesus will say, no, that appointment is not for you. Jesus will say no to you. He'll say no to that ministry appointment that you want. He may say no to that relationship that you want. He may say no to the job promotion that you want. He may say no to that possession or that vacation or that whatever it is that you want. God may say no. Jesus may disappoint you by not appointing you the way you would want to be appointed. But he says, I choose, I appoint, you go bear fruit. Let's not get the order mixed up. I choose. I am sovereign. I know what's best. I am working out my plan for the entire display of my glory in the whole universe. And you get the privilege of playing your role in my grand story. And I'm going to fill you and satisfy you and give you joy. But you must trust me. He appoints. And we bear fruit in whatever he appoints to us. Jesus is the greatest treasure. The essence of worship is valuing, treasuring him. In the ultimate sense, if you have God's promises and you have his presence, hear me, you will never be disappointed. In the ultimate sense, a believer in Jesus cannot be disappointed. Now, we might feel disappointed. All of us do. Feel disappointment because things don't go the way we would want them to. But in the ultimate sense, God's working out for his glory and your good. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, are you ever really disappointed? You have Christ. Forgiveness. Eternity. His presence. God can't disappoint you. He's already done it all. And even in our circumstances where we might feel disappointment... He's working that to expose us for who we are, sinners who need more of God's grace. And so at the root of our disappointments is, in most cases, if not all, a self-centered desire for more power or approval or comfort or control. When we want something and it doesn't work out and we're disappointed, likely we wanted more comfort or more control or more approval or more power, and that is idolatry. And God, in his goodness, says, no, I have something better for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Trusting God, experiencing his presence will give you the strength to overcome disappointment. So Ezra 3, as a wrap up, is crying out. 
is all pointing out to Jesus. He is the ultimate temple builder. Jesus is the temple builder. Everything you see in Ezra 3 is pointing to Christ, who is building a spiritual temple, a spiritual house with living stones. And guess who those living stones are? Look around the room. You can see followers of Jesus that are the living stones building a spiritual house for the Spirit of God who lives right here in us and with us. So we are recipients of God's restoration as he is building something glorious and eternal that we are a part of in the face of fear, responsibility, or disappointment. We trust Christ. We worship him. For he's accomplishing his plan to restore us for his glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we are incredibly humbled that you would love us, save us, that we could know you, that we would experience your restoring work and grace in our lives. We want more of you, more of your grace and your presence, more of your restoration in our lives and in our church. We need you. And we praise you that we have you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his cross and our salvation. We pray in his name for his glory. Amen.